Welcome to Enbus Talks, a podcast focusing on business in Singapore and Asia, where we take the lead on innovation, new technologies, and new solutions. Because Norway means business. With your host, Anders Hegre, Executive Director at the Norwegian Business Association in Singapore. Welcome to Enbus Talks. In this episode of our podcast series, we discuss one of the hottest trends in finance, so-called special purpose acquisition companies, shortened SPACs. Our members are curious to know about more about this topic, and hence we asked what opportunities do SPACs create and what challenges should we be aware of? In dialogue are Magnus Grimland, CEO of Antler, and Billy Nawid, Chief Strategy Officer of Smile Group. And Magnus, you are the CEO and founder of Antler, a global early stage VC enabling and investing in the world's most exceptional people. Um, we are very proud to have you in uh, our ranks at Enbus, uh, and, and thank you for uh, this initiative to enlightening us on SPACs. All right. Thank you, Anders. Great to be here. And uh, really want to welcome Billy Navid. Billy Navid is, is a good friend of mine and also, I'd say, one of the world's foremost experts on, on SPACs. He's definitely one of the most experienced people in the Southeast Asia region. He's done a few of them himself and he's advised a number of them. And uh, prior to that, he also has... Uh, an experience from both sides of the table, really. He's been part of building up uh, one of the unicorns in 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 Southeast Asia called Selingo. And uh, he he used to be in the banking uh, area before that. Uh, so literally combining the three the, the, the two areas now uh, to 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 both having advice and, and, and supporting and running a few of these packs. So great to have you here, Billy. Uh, excited about this conversation. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you, Magnus, for inviting me. And thank you, Anders, for uh, being a host. Yeah. And Billy now is at the Smile Group. Uh, they they build really great companies across the region, invest in really interesting businesses, and, and are possibly, without really anything, doing something in this space. So, uh, Billy, uh, excited about this conversation. So, for, for everyone listening in, um, just so you can... Go forward or backward in the conversation. We're actually going to start off with just the basics of a SPAC for the people who don't know that. So for the people who know about it already, you can skip a little bit forward in the conversation. Um, and then we're going to go a little bit into the state of the SPAC market today. And then we are uh, going to talk a little bit about you know what, what happened the last couple of years and, and how that you know will affect things in the future, uh, ending a little bit on the topic around Singapore's kind of new SPAC uh, structure that allows companies to to set up a SPAC here in Singapore as well. So that that's going to be the the conversation. Um, and for you know everyone who's kind of new to this, uh, the biggest I think one of the biggest SPACs in the world literally just went public. Grab Taxi, uh, which is one of the most used apps here in the region. Uh, so. This is not only for smaller companies, but also for some of the largest companies out there. I think the initial value of that deal was in the $40 billion range. Uh, so it can be big and it can be small. Uh, 
So, you know, before we go into the deeds of these companies, Billy, what, what, what is a SPAC? Yeah, so, you know, SPACs have actually been around for a long, long time, uh, even though most people have probably only heard of them in the last year or two. Uh, they've actually been around since about the 1980s. Um, and they were a, a direct result of the um, the 1990s Security Reform Act that basically um, allowed or actually started to um, police what was uh, before fraudulent activity going on in the penny market. And the, the Securities Act was basically um, changed in order to um, start to give investors a bit more protection and disclosure. Uh, but what that meant was that it basically set the stage for what we now today call the modern day SPAC, which is a blank check vehicle. So it's literally a, a fund uh, where you as an investor put some money into not knowing what the sponsors or promoters are going to actually go and buy. Uh, but then once they go and buy the, uh, the target, they then give you the option of taking your money back um, or you can remain in the vehicle and enjoy the upside of the the target that they've uh, they've acquired. And really, what I think one of the uh, real kind of changes in in the way that SPACs have been used over the last couple of years has been that they were used to uh, buy sort of high growth tech companies. And because at some point the private market valuations were significantly lower than public market valuations. Um, and companies were basically staying private for longer. Investors, and particularly retail investors, use these as a way to get hold of and invest in um, potentially high growth tech companies that would have a, you know, a pop on valuation once they actually list. Um, and so that was what the vehicles have been used for the last couple of years. And the innovation really has been in the voting, right? The, the fact that you can actually vote to get your money back, um, but still vote the deal through. So it's two, 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 two different types of votes. Um, that one innovation has been really what's kind of spurred the, the, the market over the last couple of years. And, uh, and yeah, it's been huge. Last, last year, I think we had 160 billion US dollars worth of assets come in to invest in SPACs. It was just unbelievable. In fact, it's, it's actually bigger than every single year of SPACs combined. Um, and it made up almost two thirds of the entire IPO market in the US last year. So it gives you a sense of just how insane things were. Um, but you know, and now, now we're here today, which we can talk about uh, kind of where the, where the market is today. But that's a bit of a history lesson as to where, where we came from. Brilliant, brilliant. And, uh... You know, for, for the people out there who is, you know, thinking about setting up a SPAC or wonder how these things get set up, like, you know, can you just talk, I know all these structures are different, right? Um, but um, if you were to kind of take like this, just an average or, or the median of a SPAC and like talk us through like from, let's say you and I, Billy, decided right now that we want to set up a SPAC, like what's the kind of the rough step-by-step -step process um, for doing that until we with these packed. Yeah. So the first thing that you need to do is create a team. And that team involves not just, you know, two people, typically involves, uh, you know, four, four, three to five people that are part of what we call the core sponsor team. Um, and then you have a bench of advisors um, that usually come along with this. And before we get going, you typically have to choose a theme. It used to be when these packs, uh, at the early stage of this recent boom, 
that you can just say, oh, I'm buying technology stocks, but that doesn't really fly anymore. You actually need to be a bit more niche and have a theme and the background of the of the board and of the sponsor should really uh, back up that theme, right? So, you know, for you and me, Magnus, would probably say, hey, we're going to go after, you know, high growth Southeast Asian tech companies, right? And then the board reflects that and the advisors reflect that. And what you're really trying to do is, is create a story for investors and try to prove to them why they should give you money and why is it that you guys are uniquely positioned to go and um, capture um, targets and bring them public and also help them when they go public as well, because it's not just about acquisition of a, a target to bring them public. It's about adding value to that business on an ongoing basis. Then once you've done that, there's a whole raft of advisors that you then need uh, that all cost a lot of money, all right? Lawyers, auditors, um, financial accountants, um, and then, you know, finally and importantly, underwriters. And there's really two directions you can go in on the underwriters. You can basically just, uh, the underwriters for hire, really, but, you know, they don't care who you are, quite frankly, they, they, they'll just almost IPO anyone. Uh, and, you know, they'll do it for a, for a set fee. Um, or you can try and get one of the larger banks, but unfortunately, the larger banks these days, they risk, their risk appetite or their desire to take on SPACs is severely diminished. Um, and, and so then you get, you get the underwriters. So you then go through a period which could last anywhere between four and eight weeks of setting up the bank accounts and getting auditors to audit the bank account, which actually contains almost no money. Uh, and then writing the S1. The S1 is the, is the kind of pitch document. It's the document you file with the SEC, but it's the first document that investors will read. And it talks really about the story, right? Why you, why now, why should people give you money? Um, and then, you go and file that and an IPO and uh, and go in and speak to investors about it. Once you've done that, uh, you then have a, a period where once you go public, you can then start speaking to your targets. Obviously, it's very, very frowned upon and legal, actually, to um, line up any targets before you actually go public, but you can actually go and start speaking targets. Um, and then usually there's a period once you've kind of locked in one or two targets that you start as a as a promoter, so once, you've done, giving, like, once you set up, once you set up the structure, um, and you go out there and you got the investor support, um, and you IPO, you then have a company with capital, and you can start searching for targets. Yes, and correct. you can't do that until you actually listed, right? And then, uh, and then you go out and 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 you start looking for targets. And how long time do you have to do that? So it used to be you'd have twenty four months. And and uh, the, the 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 timing is actually very important because uh, 24 months, almost no SPACs. In fact, I think it was literally zero SPACs went to what we call dissolution, right? Which is because they got to the end of their life and they couldn't find a target. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that, um, but the main reason is that the sponsors are incredibly incentivized to uh, bring a deal to market. Uh, we can go through the economics of it in a second, but it's a very incentive to bring a deal to market. Um, and so typically what you'd have is that if they can't find a deal, if they can't find a good deal, as they get towards the end of fund life and they risk losing all of their money, the risk capital they put up, then the quality of the deal they bring kind of goes down. And and so that is always the risk of investing in, in sponsors that are towards the end of fund life. Uh, but until recently, there'd been almost no SPACs that reached the end of that fund life. But that 24 months has become shorter and shorter and shorter. 
And now the SPACs you're seeing come to market are like 15 months. And 15 months, actually, when you take a step back, you look at all of the detailed steps involved, which won't go into on this call, but is actually not a long time. Uh, if you walk the timetable backwards, you pretty much have six months to lock in a target where you start to do deep due diligence and you start to think about bringing that target to your investors. So it is a sprint. Uh, it is a real sprint to go from zero to getting a target in that next six, six month period uh, to, you know, to go public with you. And by the way, if it gets to the point which we've had, I think nine deals or something in this quarter where the deals, have, the, the targets have been brought to the investors and said, hey, this is our company. This is the company we want to bring to the public. And they've walked away from the deal, right? Which can happen. So they've changed their mind. The market conditions have changed. And then you're in real trouble because then you're resetting the clock. But the fund life question really starts to become an issue. Yeah, because the investors can vote on whether they want to accept the deal or not, right? Yeah, exactly. So going back to the, the, the process, so you, you go find a target. Typically, you'll issue them what's called a letter of intent, an LOI. Um, that gives you some period of exclusivity or access to the books. And then you have a definitive agreement signed. Once you've been through uh, the due diligence period, you then sign a definitive agreement. And that definitive agreement sets out broad uh, parameters upon which you can take the public. So things like, hey, I need a minimum amount of cash. Um, I, you know, I need you guys to be on our board. I need you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever the definitive agreement you, you negotiate is. And then you announce it to the public. You say, hey, guys, we have this target. Uh, this is, um, you have a pitch deck that you design and tells you about how great the target is. And the unique thing about SPACs is you can actually tell uh, the investors forward forecasts. So that, that's been the big controversial, controversial element of SPACs versus IPOs. And IPOs, you cannot talk about uh, forecasts at all. But SPACs, you can talk about whatever you like. Because uh, technically, it's a merger. It's not really an IPO. And this actual forecasting has been... They're touching upon an important point, right? Like, why do companies choose to go the route of a SPAC when going public uh, or to raise capital yeah. um, versus just going public or just raising capital in the private markets? So uh, the, the reasons have changed dramatically, right? So if we go back for a, a bit of a history lesson um, on, on why, why SPACs were, what kind of SPACs we had before. So when I was at, you know, Credit Suisse and Morgan Stanley, and we used to do SPACs. SPACs were always for highly speculative binary outcome investments, typically. And that would be in the biotech industry, in oil and gas extraction, um, and, you know, and these, kind of, these kind of things. And the reason that they, they would uh, be there is that if it's a coin flip um, or it's a low probability but high outcome sort of trade, it may be too risky for a single VC to take that on, right? An example would be, hey, Magnus, I'm going to go drill in Orchard for oil, right? There's a 5% chance I might find it. But if I find it, it's a billion-dollar outcome. But if I don't, then I'm going to lose $500 million, right? That probably sounds like a bad trade. But if you, if you can get the math right in terms of the valuation, what happens is, is that that risk spread over hundreds of investors 
is acceptable, right? Because it's a small part of their fund and there's like a, it's like a, you know, you pick your pennies in front of a roller coaster, uh, a, a steamroller. But if it's a one fund, like Sequoia may not want to take that risk. And so that's why private markets in that scenario where you need a lot of cash infused day one to take these kind of uh, uh, extraordinary bets is better done by a spike vehicle. At least that was the tradition. And now that morphed into, hey, let's take this, um, you know, uh, speculative tech company that, you know, it said make EVs and, hey, if you can give them, give them a billion dollars, they'll be the next Tesla. And, you know, it's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So that's how it morphed into. Now, the reason that companies um, before, this is, diff- uh, that's why I say it's before, because actually the reasons have changed, is it used to be quick. Right, so typical IPO process used to take, it still does, about nine months, right, at least. Um, and it used to be that the stock process was quick. It would take three months because the cash is there. All I have to do is make an agreement, go, to, go public, and uh, this, even this concept of pipes wasn't even really around that much. And boom, I'm, I'm public, right? So if I needed money quickly, I'd go there. The problem now is because of pipes, the raising of pipes, and the reason you need pipes now and this Pipes are basically uh, public market investors. Before the definitive agreement is announced, they'll agree to give you money to add to the SPAC um, uh, pot. Right? So let's say my SPAC is $200 million. I go buy a billion-dollar company. I then go raise a, a pipe, which is a, a, a public investment in a private equity. And that is additional cash infusion fusion into, my, into my deal. And the reason you needed it for was because you have these redemptions, right? Redemptions are when you give the votes to people, they can choose to take the money out. And that redemption process, maybe you'd have 20, 30% redemptions. And now it's like 90% redemptions. It's causing a huge problem. The pipe also acts as validation for your, for your valuation. Because if a BlackRock or Fidelity come in and they evaluate the business, and it's not just Billing David and Magnus, right? Like that are that are evaluating the business and think it's a good deal. If they validate the business and say, yeah, this is a great price, a great deal, it gives the market confidence to say, yes, actually, I'll stay in the deal because you know this guy, this guy uh, uh, evaluated it. But that pipe process. So the pipe process is literally these are not the people who took part in the in the SPAC, but these are other investors who want to come in and invest alongside you into that business. Uh, which gives you more validation that this is a great deal. That's right. Now, and obviously more capital to the to the company you you invest into. Correct. Now the uh, pipe process uh, was uh, used to be very quick, right? I mean, if, if you look at Lucid, um, Citigroup raised that multi-billion-dollar pipe in mushroom like three days. Today, pipe process takes a long time because again, it's all about could they make money. And if a pipe investor was investing early in SPACs and these things were going up 80, 90, 100% immediately, it was great, right? I'll give you all the money you want in the world. Uh, but today, those pipes are not making money. And in fact, pipe investors are um, disadvantaged to trust investors because they're locked up for six months. That means they can't sell their securities for six months. And so they really have to believe that in the long-term uh, value of that business. And so... Uh, that pipe process is taking longer. And then on top of that, the SEC. So SEC is not just like, hey, I approve this merger, go ahead and, and you're good. They're taking a lot of time in terms of reviewing, 
to protect retail investors, right? To review the financials, review the companies, review the sponsors. So this three-month three concept where, hey, it's quicker to go public via SPAC is not necessarily the case anymore. In fact, sometimes it takes as long as going public a regular way. So the question is, is why are companies still going public through SPACs if time is not the, not the thing? Is that you are still getting, in theory, a whole bunch of cash, guaranteed a guaranteed valuation, um, and the SPAC sponsor, if you think they can add a tremendous amount of value to your business, whether it's through business development or doors, new products, whatever it is, that is now almost the only reason that people are going public via SPAC still is because of those two things. I guess also over time, um, it it allows you to access the public markets earlier than you possibly otherwise would have done. And if you do well as a company, that 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 gives you kind of toolkits you didn't have available to yourself in the past, right? It's a double-edged sword, right? Being public is is uh, is really really good because. You have, as you said, access to this deep, liquid pool of capital. And we saw during the early part of COVID, right? If you remember 2020, um, all these public companies like raising money like crazy, uh, almost no discounts because you just could not feed enough equity into the into, into the mouths. And private markets were shut like 100%. I think that was really the wake-up call for a lot of these companies. If you look at the SM, if you look at the US companies, I think the average age of companies going public has moved from six years to like 11 years. And this is because all the VCs have convinced every private company, hey, you should stay private for longer. It's like unlimited cash here. Don't worry about it. During 2020, that all got proved to be wrong, right? They, they private equity basically shut the doors. They were scared of COVID. And, and in the meantime, the public markets were like roaring. There was the dip in March um, and the crash you know, during COVID and then it just went nuts. And so the, 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 the fact that, and it's true, private markets are fair weather friends in many ways, right? If, if things are good, they'll be there for you. and things get bad, it gets, it gets very dicey. The double-edged sword is because in public markets, unless you perform, right, uh, they're also very um, financially driven. It's not like in the BC markets, like, hey, Magnus, you know, you and I have known each other for 10 years. Uh, you're my buddy. You go through tough times. It's okay, man. Like you know, we'll support you because it's not really market to market. And as uh, as as a, a friend of mine said, in public in private markets, if you meet ninety percent of your quarterly target, yeah, if you were my investor, you'd be like, oh, Billy, man, you're such a legend. Ninety percent, high five. Let's go for beers. You know, this is awesome. In public markets, that's a ten percent miss. Your stock is gonna get crushed. Right, like 30% next day. So, so the investors look at these things in very different ways, right? One's a relationship long term. I know that you're a private company, you're probably like being optimistic in some of the things you're doing, but hey, you know, it's long term vision. And in public markets, it's like, what have we done for you lately? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if that, what have we done for you lately is good, you'll have an unlimited amount of capital to go after. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are advantages and disadvantages. Um, Hey, just before we move on to the, you know, the status of the market today, just kind of walking through a little bit the, the economics, just on a very basic high level, average, um, um, you know, level, um, the economics of a SPAC. So obviously there are the people who set it up. Um, there's the promote, 
There's then the people who come in and back it as an investor. Uh, then there's the pipe. Uh, just, just kind of talk through a little bit of how the economics work um, on a very high level, average level. I know every every spike is different, but um, I think it's useful for people just to understand. So if you were to set up, and again, things have changed a bit, but let's say um, a couple of years ago, if you set up a $200 million SPAC, it would typically cost you $6 million US dollars to set up. And for that, you would get for free shares worth 20% of the SPAC in your pocket, right? So that's worth $40 million on day one, in theory, right? If, if you could buy something. Um, on top of that, you get warrants and you get 6 million warrants that would give you the right to buy shares at $11.50. So it's a premium to the $10 that you would IPO at, but that's another value that you would get as a sponsor. Today, those economics have changed a bit. Now it costs you more like $10 million for the same thing, right? So the, it's, the price has gone up uh, and you still get you know, some, some number of warrants. And that's why from a sponsor's perspective, it was an amazing deal. Right back in the day, because you would basically make you know five to depending on if you count the issue of warrants, five to eight x uh, your money almost immediately, right? For really just bringing a company public, and so you are even okay for the stock to go down up to you know sixty, seventy, eighty percent because you were still sort of in the money in that in that sense. From an investor's point of view, when you invest. Number one, you're investing and you're guaranteed to get your principal back always, right? So you always get your principal back uh, if, you, if you want to. But on top of that, you'd get warrants. And the warrants, again, before used to range from typically a third to a half a warrant for every share you buy. And so we look at these things in yields, right? Like what would the yield of the, of the, of the entire instrument be? And, you know, with... When you used to buy uh, these these spacs and in the bull market, these yields would be like six to twelve percent, right? So you would buy something at ten, and because the warrants would be worth so much money, suddenly that unit would be worth you know twelve dollars, uh, uh, eleven, eleven fifty, twelve dollars. Like it was worth a lot of money. Um, and even if you redeem and ask for your money back from the trust, you get to keep the warrants. And that's what a lot of these arbitrage funds were doing, the fixed income funds. And that's why really the funds that were investing in this product, some were fundamental, but majority were not. They were just buying free options. Right? I'll give you $10, you give me my $10 back you know, at some point before the end of the 24 months. Um, and I'll redeem regardless of whatever it is because I'm a fixed income fund. And I just keep these, these warrants that you know, at some point, maybe they're worth a lot of money. Now, unfortunately, those warrants are now not worth a lot of money, but you know, some, you know, in theory, they could be worth a lot of money, but it's free, so I didn't, I didn't even care for that. So, so the question is, who pays for all of this, right? You've got these warrants um, and the retail end, you've got the warrants and the dilution um, of, the, of the SPAC. It's the company, right? So the company's going public and their existing investors end up paying for that dilution. And, and so they offset that usually in one of two ways. Either they increase the valuation, Right, so it offsets the dilution a little bit, um, or they just assume, well, hang on, the value that this sponsor is bringing me is way higher than the dilution I'm going to get, um, or more more uh, commonly nowadays is I say, actually, Mr. Sponsor, you can't take twenty percent, right, for for nothing. We'd like you to reduce the amount of uh, of shares you're taking, or 
reduce it and put the shares on some sort of earnout, right? So you actually earn your money uh, rather than get paid up front. So that that number of you know five to ten times on IPO isn't you know doesn't exist anymore, right? Now you're looking at more like you know I think typically the deals we've seen recently is like you might make two three times your money if the stock performs and does does decently well over the next you know couple of years. So sounds like it's it's really kind of been a been a healthy um, realignment of incentives in in most of the specs going going live today, um, which 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 is great to hear. Um, you know, with that, with that, you know, we're 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 you know going through a bit of the kind of basics and the structure of, of specs and how that is developed, and they gave us a useful walkthrough of history and and how things have changed. Um, what what is the state of the spec market today? Um, just for the people who are who are looking at it right now, um, yeah, it's pretty pretty bad. <laughs> I'm pretty bad. I'm not gonna lie. Um, so if you look at the performance of the of the of the deals, uh, only twenty percent of SPACs that have closed since you know October last year are actually trading above ten dollars. Only eighty percent are below, and not like a little bit below. They're like really really far below. Um, redemption. Yeah, and, and for for everyone listening, uh, trading below ten dollars. Typically, these 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 vehicles go go uh, go live at ten dollars. Yes. If they're trading below, that means that the stock is 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 worth less than when they went public. Correct. Yeah. So you're losing money as a as an investor in the trust. Um, redemption rates, which are basically a signal of confidence in the spec sponsor's ability to actually deliver value. Uh, last month, uh, sorry, this month in February, are averaging 90%. So that means that if you raise $200 million, you're actually only left with $20 million, right, to give to the company. Um, now, by the way, just to give you, and this is not happening, but in theory, remember, I was given $40 million as my promote in this $200 million vehicle. So, uh, you know, if all things were equal, which they're not, is the $20 million you've raised from me as an investor has cost you $40 million, right, dilution, which obviously there's that math doesn't work. So redemption rates being high are a real cause for concern outside of just the SPAC performance. Um, but the interesting thing is there's a lot of companies looking for targets, right? So 700 SPACs are still looking for, for, for targets today. Um, and the number of 700 SPACs that have already been raised are actively looking for targets. Yeah. They preferably need to close within the next 12 months, which, uh, which I assume that if you're a growth tech company, um, it means you're getting a lot of calls. Lot of or, calls. or if you're kind of at the right souls, at, at the right size, you get a lot of calls. My prediction is that. Um, given what's happening with interest rates and all the stuff that's, that's happening and compressing multiples in public markets for growth companies, we're going to start seeing these SPACs start to buy non-tech assets. Like, value Yeah, value Things with earnings. I mean, I know it's a thing that tech people don't understand what they are, but earnings, right? Earnings and EBITDA and all this good stuff that we should have because it's very... It's very clear the market is absolutely not interested in them buying the next EV company or the next, you know, space rocket company. Like people just don't have any interest. Um, 
And, and like, so, so that's what's going on. So market is in a really, really tough space. Also, deal terminations are record high. So we've seen five deal terminations already uh, quarter today. I predict that's going to continue to continue to go higher. Registration withdrawals, right? This is also, so imagine I file my S1. I'm speaking to investors. Um, there was almost none, I think, before Q2 last year. And this, uh, you know, is starting Q3, but this quarter today, we had 19 SPACs that have spoken to investors and said, no, forget it. I'm, I'm not doing this. Um, and so the 700 that are looking for targets, they've raised the money. In December, there were 300 that had filed ready to IPO that were waiting in the wings. And that number's gone down a bit as people have withdrawn the registrations. But there's still about 250 SPACs that are filed, companies set up, they're waiting to raise the money. So there's still a lot of people that believe that they have some sort of differentiation that they should go out and, 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 and raise a SPAC today. So I think actually what you may see um, are deals now done with SPAC sponsors where maybe other SPAC sponsors are going to come in and buy your SPAC and you know get, get you the target, or that the, um, the shoe will move to the other foot where targets are now the kingpins. Right? They can almost name their price because at the moment, many SPAC sponsors are looking down the barrel of losing their six to nine million dollars or whatever it is they put on if they don't actually go ahead and, and find uh, find a decent target. It's very interesting. Yeah. So, so in 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 such a market like this, um, what what do you think are going to be the the successful SPACs? Right? Because obviously, um, I, I assume that, that that there's still kind of a bit of the the, the back end of the bull market here, but um, you know, there's obviously also a lot of very professional operators in this space who. We'll make some good deals happen. So, like, what 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 are the kind of core purpose and and the deals here that that will do well? And and how should people use SPACs in in today's environment? Yeah. So the good news is that um, private market valuation expectations of course come are coming down or are, are slowly. I mean, not as quickly as public markets, but slowly coming down. So, um, as as the the winter tech winter slowly moves into private markets, there will be opportunities um, for uh, investors to, again, going back to this thing where if, I, if I'm a sponsor and I, I myself don't have to rely on the pipe market and other investors, I can come and deliver you a corpus of cash that's going to make a difference to your business. I will be in a huge advantage. And for companies, I have to realize that that could be the last cash infusion you get until you have to start delivering on your business plan. And so if you look at companies, know, like take a, a random EV company, they're like, oh, it's okay, I'll raise $300 million in the SPAC process and I'll raise another half a billion dollars in public markets. Like that's not going to happen now, right? You need to make sure that you reach your sales targets in that, in that order. So for companies that, number one, are used to dealing with public markets, and when I say that, I mean, they understand how to be conservative in their revenue forecasts and beat revenues, right? Not miss them. And I think that unfortunately, most companies in on public via SPACs have consistently missed revenues. So if they know how to beat revenues, if they know how to deliver a product 
and, and short traction. They have high certainty of traction under the time frame, the money they've been given. And then you have SPAC sponsors that can truly, truly add value where they're saying, you know what? I believe in this company so much that I'm going to take my sponsor promote and I will just put it all into, or a lot of it into an earn, some kind of earnout, where I will you know, put my money where my mouth is, right? You're then moving into a scenario where it's a bit more like a, a VC fund. It's a public market VC fund. So you, know, you with your VC fund, Magnus, I assume you don't get paid 20% if uh, these, the value of your portfolio doesn't go up, right? That would be great, but I'm sure that doesn't happen, right? So, so you, if you align yourself, and by, by the way, people don't mind paying you for your awesome returns. Once you've made those awesome returns, it's going to be a similar thing in the back world, right? Eventually, it's going to turn to where um, if you align your interests with your investors, where they, you only make money if the thing goes up, you actually lose money with them if the thing goes down. And you have um, targets that have got sensible products that are going to be delivered, where they're going to meet the earnings forecasts, uh, they're going to be communicating with the market. All of that sets yourself up for companies that will succeed. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. You know, so, so more aligned incentives, um, more solid targets. I think also the point you mentioned earlier around probably you see more SPACs going after profitable companies that are less reliant on raising that that additional bit of capital in the public markets, but will still benefit from being public, um, is, is probably an interesting way to go. Hey, hey, Billy, I think so far we spoke, you know, a lot of what we talked about was, um, these, these are mostly the dynamics we talked around the structure. It's somewhat similar in all markets, but most of what we talked about are, are SPACs that are listed in the US, which is by far, I mean, the most active market um, um, for, you know, Southeast Asian companies, Norwegian companies, or other companies globally who are potentially looking at listing in Singapore. Singapore just came out with um, a set of guidelines around listing SPACs in Singapore, which are a little bit different uh, from the rest of the world. Can you talk a little bit through that structure? Obviously, the market is also different. Uh, the, the US uh, public market is a bit more liquid than here, but you know, we'd love to, love to get your opinion on... Uh, on, on, on that for the people that are interested in potentially doing this in Singapore? Yeah, so we've seen a, you know, a, a big move more generally for um, high growth companies to no longer think of the US as their only listing venue, right? Uh, India, you've seen a number of companies go public very successfully at very um, you know, great valuations um, because there's so much local demand for uh, for equities that maybe they wouldn't get access to before, and you know we've seen the same across many different markets. So uh, you know S Singapore is trying to reassert itself as uh, the hub for Southeast Asian tech. Uh, naturally, if you look at companies that are growing up um, in Southeast Asian region, you know fintech, consumer-facing e-commerce, uh, those seem to be like you know a couple of the big uh, big types of companies that will probably go public via, via the uh, exchanges here. Um, the, you know, the, the sponsors themselves so far have been sovereign wealth or pseudo-sovereign wealth backed funds with their own portfolios are, are pretty big um, of companies that they could bring public um, and also deep pockets where they can support the companies in their, in their public life. So 
uh, at least in the early stages, it's been a slightly different type of SPAC sponsor um, that's come out. You know, it's not your typical, um, you know, VC from the Valley that's like coming out and, and doing this stuff. Um, in terms of the, the, the structures, actually a lot of it's very similar, um, but you know, there's a couple of like subtle differences where the minimum market cap for uh, Singapore listed um, SPAC is, is higher than the US and the US is like $50 million and Singapore is like 150 million SING. Um, the issue price, the equivalent of the $10 that we said, which was actually, it's not a rule, it's more market norm, is, is $5 here in, in, in Singapore. Um, and then if you look at the sponsor suitability, um, it's a little bit, I think the bar is a bit higher here than in the US um, in terms of their track record. And the time frame, I think, is the big one. So time frame is 24 months plus up to 12 months extension in Singapore. You know, and that's that's a long time in the US, as we know, even though technically they have 24 months, reality now is you have like much, much less time. So I think the the Singapore investors are giving these spec sponsors a lot, a lot more time. Um, the other thing is skin in the game, right? So the sponsor has to invest themselves between two and a half and three and a half percent of the SPAC itself. So they have to have um, almost, you know, they have to invest in the LP as well. So they, they would lose money if, if the thing went down. I think, uh, you know, in general, those are kind of the, the, big, the big things they do. You know, they do limit the SPAC sponsor promote 20% here. So just limiting it to what is a market norm in the US. And that 20% is actually just a market norm. It's not a legal requirement in the US. Um, and then they also limit the dilution that shareholders can have. So again, 50% maximum dilution from conversion of warrants. So I think what Singapore's done is taken a lot of the market norms and put rules around them and say, are these actual rules rather than we just assume that the market is going to do the right thing. Um, so we'll see. You know, there's been a few SPACs listed here. I think it's very early to say exactly how they're going to do. Uh, so let's see who, who they end up buying and, uh, and what the aftermarket performance is. Yeah, no, I think it's super interesting. Um, another difference, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the way I understood it is, um, I mean, obviously for the US SPACs, as we mentioned earlier, you can't identify the target prior to listing the SPAC. But in Singapore, you can actually have conversations and potentially even have identified the target prior to listing this back. Is, 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 is this correct? Um, because that obviously changes the dynamic a bit in terms of creating certainty what, what, once you're setting one of these things up. Yeah, I, so I, I don't know what the exact legal um, post is in Singapore. Um, in, in, the, in, SC, in the SEC guidelines, you can't have what they call substantive conversations, right? So substantive is actually like a legal word. I'm not sure that exists under the under the SPAC framework here and or how substantive those conversations can be. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly the, the, the legal terms, but look, in the US, uh, one of the things the SEC has been concerned about is the speed at which some of the SPACs have, have found targets. And then that's, that's been one of the things that have led to delays in registrations as they come and say, hey, prove to me that you actually conducted an extensive SPAC search. Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, possibly the most important for the outcome. So I, I, I see that why, why that concern is there. Um, 
Yeah, so, and, and, and for the people who want to kind of seek more information around this, Billy, right, you know, um, where, where, where do they go? Do they go to, to their local bank? Do they go to one of the big banks? Do they go to like a SPAC advisor, a lawyer? Like where, where do they seek advice? Obviously, they can find Billy Navid on LinkedIn and uh, send you a message, but you probably get a billion messages. So like where, where do people go to get more information about this? Well, there's um, a great newsletter um, from a company called SPACresearch.com. So that's if you just want to keep up with uh, kind of, you know, uh, monthly, they have a very detailed review of what's going on in the markets. Um, that's one. Um, if you want more up-to-date sort of what what what's going on on a daily basis, you know, there's another website called Boardroom Alpha um, that also follows the, the ingoings and comings of the SPAC market. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think right now there's um, a lot of SPAC advisors and and, uh, and and investment banks that could run you through the detailed process of how to set these up. You know, I would definitely recommend looking at the reputation and what they've done before. Um, them having done more SPACs is not necessarily better, uh, but the quality and the, the type of sponsors that they've been able to work with is probably a better indicator. So tread a little bit carefully, um, but uh, you know, there's a lot of research available online, and and, uh, and I think those two websites between them, when you're going to invest uh, or understand the market, should be good enough. Yeah, I think that's very good advice for for everyone listening. Is you know, look at the quality of of of, of the spacs and and the people uh, these outfits have worked with before. Uh, you obviously want to ensure that when you do this, you are in that bucket. And and not in, in 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 the masses that 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 have been have been yeah. struggling lately. So it's a, it's a great piece of advice there. Um, any other learnings or um, you know structural things we should go through? And any 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 more advice we we, sh- we should discuss before we're wrapping up here? I, I you know I think that um, SPACs are not going away. Right, they're 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 here to stay in some way, shape, or form. It's a it's is providing another tool in the toolkit um, for for other companies um, to go public and for investors to invest in some of these high growth high growth tech companies. And every product goes through these boom and bust cycles. And I think it's uh, it's it's uh, it's not a surprise when we saw the madness of of twenty twenty one and and you know twenty twenty now come to roost here and and where we are. So things will change, uh, but you know, watch the space. Um, there's one thing is that SPACs, just like the targets, are full of entrepreneurs and always figure out a way to uh, to make money. And I think that if you uh, continue to do your research, invest in and back people that you you know, know or you know the reputation, I think that's that's the that's the key. But right now, uh, you know, it's it's a very 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 challenging market, but it's fascinating to watch. Uh, because we have, like I said, it's over, you know, almost 200 billion US dollars of money tied up in this asset class that grew from almost nowhere. Um, and that's going to be used for something. So uh, so I think it's really important to, to, to keep an eye on this because one of the most important areas of the, of the financial markets. Yeah, no, I... I think you're spot on. And, and, uh, and I think the more tools that are available to incredible people who are innovating, trying to solve problems, um, trying to build something new, whether that's you know a more zero to one type cancer drug or you know other 
health tech uh, or or other big moonshot or if it's a more kind of traditional business uh, the more of these tools that are available to great people i think the better future we will build so you know yes as as these things um become more prominent there will always be uh you know a, a period of froth and and uh, probably you know the pendulum swinging a little bit too far in one direction but then later it's there to stay and it's a new tool in the toolbox for uh, for great people so um you know for anyone who are out there and are considering this i think you know it's almost like any business right billy like you need to put together an incredible team uh work with the best people uh be very thoughtful around the targets you're looking for and um, if you're an investor into this be thoughtful about the people you're backing and um and the end result should just be you know more innovation and growth so uh, so so from that sense uh, it's 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 great that we're seeing this uh, um hey hey billy for 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 people who want to kind of follow you and uh and and what you're doing what's what's the best place to to get some updates from billy is it linkedin or twitter or instagram or like what what's your linkedin linkedin <laughs> LinkedIn, uh, just uh, building read on LinkedIn. Uh, there I'll post, I, I, I write quite a bit on uh, my Substack, which I'll post on LinkedIn. So yeah, LinkedIn's the best place. Uh, and then on uh, on Twitter, it's uh, just building the read as well. Perfect. That's great, Billy. Yeah, this was a really real masterclass in uh, in SPACs and, and a great conversation. Interesting. Um, uh, also, for me, that uh, don't know so much about it from before, but I think this works on on both uh, for both people that uh, have a bit of background and and also for for experts. So thank you so much, and to you, Magnus, also for a great line of, of questions. I just want to wrap it up with a question to you, Magnus, because you have five uh, continents and, and 14 countries that you work uh, out of. Last time I checked, is probably more now, but um, what has uh, what uh, does back what kind of role does it play in your uh, work around the world? So I mean, we're we're on six continents now, twenty one offices, and um, uh, you know, f- for us over time, obviously we back companies from day one, uh, and and uh, you know we invest up in them up to Series C. So so for us over time, it's just a new toolkit for um, our founders to raise the the capital. That they need as they get into their later stages. It's also a way to create liquidity in markets that, and at the stage where prior there there wasn't that liquidity, right? Um, so it's it's an alternative to secondaries, M and A, and the full IPO process. Um, um, so it's not only the access to capital, which of course is incredibly important for great people who want to innovate, uh, but it's also the ability for you know, investors, founders, people who back these companies for a long period of time um, to turn a non-liquid um, investment into a liquid investment. So um, it's a super exciting trend. And, um, you know, yes, um, I think it's Billy pointed out many times and, and I agree with him. It's, 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 you know, over the last couple of years, there's probably been, you know, it's been so popular and uh, the incentives at some point in time was not fully aligned with the best outcomes so there was probably a lot of less serious operators in the spec world uh, that i think is changing now so we think this is a 
a tool that many of our founders and portfolio companies uh, might consider um, as they're becoming bigger, uh, you know, when they're in the kind of three, 400 to move the billion dollar, um, uh, you know, space. And I mean, you've seen great companies all across the globe, you know, using this uh, biggest one, as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, um, was um, Grab Taxi here out of Southeast Asia, who uh, could use this to uh, to probably go public a bit quicker than if they had to go through the normal route, which now gives you know investors all across the globe the opportunity to to get exposure to one of the biggest uh, you know tech successes in Southeast Asia, which is interesting in itself because. You know, you can get as as a retail investor, you can get access then to tech companies earlier, um, uh, and at the same time, obviously, you know, people have been working on building that company since what 2011, 2012. So people get some liquidity in in their you know less liquid investment or former employees um, can can you know cash out some of their stock options for all the hard work that they put in. So there there are a lot of interesting avenues here for 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 our founders to utilize this as a, a tool as they as they grow if done in a smart and thoughtful way as uh, i think billy and i pointed out a few times so you know work with the best people <laughs> all right i think that uh, is a very good message at the end thank you so much uh, billy noid uh, Chief Strategy Officer at Smile Group and Magnus Grimland, CEO and founder of Antler. And thank you for listening to Enbus Talks. We will share all the links mentioned in this episode on our webpage. So thanks again both and uh, see you soon. Thank you for listening to Enbus Talks, a podcast from the Norwegian Business Association in Singapore with your host, Anders Hegre. To find out more, go to enbus.org.sg and join us for our next podcast shortly.